0: Everyone, welcome back. This is lecture number 11. We're going to talk about the infected cell. And you may say, Well, haven't we been talking about the infected cell this whole time? Yes, but this is a different approach. We have so far focused on gene expression, genome reproduction, and assembly, right? All of these things, all of these activities depend on the host, of course, on metabolic, biosynthetic signaling and trafficking systems. So today, Uh, we are going to take an integrated look at the impact of virus infection on the host cell from a point of view of uh, these kinds of activities uh, that happen during the uh, reproductive cycle. And we're going to look at four distinct areas of the infected cell. First, signal transduction, gene expression, metabolism, and remodeling of cellular organelles. A lot of this is quite new, only been and worked out in the past few years. So, first, signal transduction. Hopefully, you all knew what you will know what signal transduction is. If not, I will explain it here. Signal transduction or is the mechanism by which cells sense their environment. So, here's a cell. There are nutrients outside. The cell can sense that and respond appropriately by dividing, for example. In fact, signal transduction pathways govern every aspect of cell physiology and conduct what a cell does uh, in its particular environment, wherever that might be. And here on the uh, left is an example of such signal transduction pathways. Typically we have cell surface receptors that will engage ligands. And when the ligand is engaged, a cascade results. And these are green arrows in my pictures today, I always indicate stimulate. So in this case, engagement of uh, these receptors by their ligands activates the um, PI3 kinase, uh, which is a uh, very important kinase, a central kinase that will then phosphorylate a substrate. And you have a chain of phosphorylations typically, and that's what we mean by signal transduction. So in this case, you know, we stimulate PI3 kinase, which will phosphorylate another target, which in turn will phosphorylate another target. And then when we have these red arrows, that means inhibiting. And these can get very complicated. You know, you kind of have to work through because you have multiple inhibitors and stimulators. So for example, phosphorylation here is inhibiting AKT, but AKT is inhibiting these two, which in turn inhibit this. So that releases (laughs) everything downstream of this, right? Because normally uh, reb uh, stimulates those but if you in- inhibit it you you release that so <clears throat> eventually in this case we have things like cell proliferation and growth autophagy either being stimulated or inhibited you know so if cells have growth factors outside the cell they will produce uh, they will divide and make the genes that you need to uh, divide for example now the key here is that virus infections can change signaling to promote their own reproduction of course they have to do that. And this is something we've only discovered recently. So, on this picture are a number of viral proteins, like adenovirus E4ORF1, that's a protein, influenza virus NS1, et cetera, which uh, interfere or stimulate. So, here we have these viral proteins stimulate PI3 kinase. And probably that's so the cells divide and grow. That same stimulation will inhibit autophagy. Which would be the cell killing itself, of course, digesting itself. In other cases, the viral proteins inhibit. So here, VSV is inhibiting AKT, uh, which uh, usually inhibits TSC. So that relieves uh, the inhibition on TSC, and then you can follow all the downstream events. All right. So that we're going to look at some examples of this today. But uh, at all of these pathways, viral proteins interject either in a positive or negative way to ensure that the cell environment is proper for their reproduction. So that's the end goal here is to make sure that the cell is suitable for virus reproduction. So here are a couple of examples of how signaling via PI3 kinase, phosphoinositol 3 kinase, you know, it uh, phosphorylates PI3K, to PI3, sorry. In this case, we have three examples of how signaling via this kinase, protein kinase, uh, facilitates virus entry. So here on the left, we have adenovirus uh, binding to its two receptors and being taken up uh, by a coated pit, eventually gets into an endosome, right? And what's happening here is that the binding stimulates a phosphorylation cascade through these proteins and eventually PI3K. And that signals through some other proteins, including the rack and yellow kinase, the rack. And these then loosen up the actin microfilaments so the, so the vesicles can move in. Remember the plasma membrane, just beneath the plasma membrane, there is a layer of actin microfilaments. So vesicles can't just move in willy-nilly. They have to, that, that microfilament network has to be loosened up. And so the virus binding stimulates that. It makes perfect sense, right? And if you interfere with this pathway, the virus can't get into cells. So that's one example. Here's another one, influenza virus binding to the cell surface. Again, we're going to see the loosening up of the actin microfilament, one thing, but other things happen. And what happens for influenza virus, the binding happens in areas of the plasma membrane called lipid rafts. These lipid rafts cluster after virus binds, they activate PI3K, which helps uh, loosen up the actin microfilament. But it also activates the vacuolar ATPase, which is a pump that pumps protons into the endosome. Remember, you need acidification of the endosome in order for the fusion to occur. So that really facilitates that. It's really amazing. And remember, the fusion of the viral membrane and the endosome membrane liberates the uh, ribonuclear protein so it can go into the nucleus. There's also another interesting activity that's been recently discovered, and that is the virus appears to bind to this calcium channel, voltage-dependent calcium channel on, on the cell surface. It, it doesn't enter that way. But what it does is it binds and, and it makes calcium go in and that somehow facilitates release of uh, RNA from the fusion uh, activity in the endosome. Really interesting. And if you interfere with this binding, it's, it's very difficult for the virus to enter cells. So two different things going on there. And then finally, the last example here is Ebola virus, uh, which uh, binds to some surface receptor, plasma membrane receptor that's not been identified. And these are taken up by macropinocytosis, eventually get into endosomes. And remember, there's an endosomal receptor to which the viral spike binds, catalyzes fusion and release of the nuclear capsid into the cytosol. But this, um, this is facilitated by PI3 kinase again, uh, wh- whose signaling, again, stimulated by the binding of the virus to the receptor it inhibits the the transit of the endosome to uh, later vesicles, which are not permissive for fusion. And so it makes sure that this step doesn't happen so the virus gets out of that endosome. Uh, So it can get to the RNA in the cytosol. Otherwise, in this later vesicle that this endosome would fuse with, the virus wouldn't be able to get out. So signaling takes care of that, quite interesting. These uh, PI3 kinases uh, are involved in a lot of virus infections. And there's there's a particular relay called the PI3-kinase mTOR relay. mTOR is a master regulator of many cellular activities, including translation. And of course, viral messages need to be translated in virus-infected cells. And here we have a number of viral proteins, different viruses, hepatitis C virus, uh, a rotavirus protein, uh, an adenovirus protein, all binding PI3K and stimulating Phosphorylation of AKT and, and the herpes, uh, human cytomegalovirus protein uh, stimulates AKT directly. And that blocks apoptosis, so the cell stays alive, increases the cellular metabolism, uh, and increases the, um, it, it activates mTOR, which increases translation. And that's good for the virus in the end. And on this slide, another two examples here is hepatitis uh, B virus X protein and also the herpesvirus 8 genome encodes a, a G-protein-coupled receptor, multipass protein, which uh, interacts again with PI3K, stimulates it, stimulates AKT, and you get, again, cell division um, and um, translation increase. So there are common pathways among these, these different viruses. Here's a really interesting one because it's an RNA virus. And this is a viral RNA that actually blocks... AKT activation to induce apoptosis. So let's go back here. So normally, <clears throat> um, a- AKT is involved uh, with a- apoptosis, right? So um, AKT normally blocks apoptosis. So if you inhibit AKT, you get apoptosis. These are very confusing to look at. I'm sorry about that. Um, so here we have a viral RNA. This is a flavivirus. These are viruses with plus-stranded RNAs. They're characterized by the uh, the spike lying flat on the virus particle. And flaviviruses include dengue virus, West Nile virus, Zika virus, yellow fever virus, Important medically important viruses. So when the RNA is uh, released into the cytoplasm, here is the uh, RNA at the top. In the middle here, I've shown the RNA in kind of a simplified version. The open reading frame is, is shown very short. It's normally the length of the RNA. And we're showing the five prime untranslated region and the three prime untranslated region. And a fraction of the viral RNAs are degraded in the cytoplasm by this, this uh, exonuclease called XRN1. This is an exonuclease we'll come back to multiple times here. It starts to chew down from the five prime end, and then it gets to the 3' UTR. It can't go any further. This structure apparently inhibits it from chewing. This doesn't happen for every RNA, obviously. or The virus would never reproduce, right? But it happens for a fraction of them, And this SFRNA, uh, this is uh, subgenomic fRNA, uh, this is needed for making plaques and for causing disease in mice. Uh, Subgenomic flavivirus RNA. I'm trying to think of what the F stands for. The F is flavivirus. Subgenomic flavivirus RNA. So you can make a deletion near the three prime end, um, which uh, prevents the production of this sgRNA. So this mutant can't make sgRNA, and it doesn't form plaques. Wild-type virus can form plaques, but if you prevent the formation of uh, this subgenomic RNA, the virus can't form plaques. And what this RNA does, it inactivates AKT, promotes apoptosis, so the cells break, and uh, you can get a plaque formation. And in fact, in mice, these these mutants don't cause disease. They have reduced disease. So apparently, you know, apoptosis is important for that. Small RNA which you know, is, is, again, produced in only a fraction of the genomes. Many viruses inhibit cellular gene expression. So what is cellular gene expression? Well, you start from a, a DNA in the nucleus, and then you have transcription to give you a pre-mRNA, then you have polyadenylation and splicing, uh, RNA export, and then, of course, eventually translation in the cytosol. And every step of this process is... Uh, is uh, interdicted by some virus protein. And they're all listed here. So for example, transcription by Paul II and camping are inhibited by these viral proteins. In fact, poliovirus, which inhibits Paul II, also inhibits Paul I and III. So in a polio-infected cell, very quickly after infection, all cell RNA synthesis is shut off. Why? So everything's available for the virus, right? All the components, the triphosphates, et cetera, They're all available to make viral genomes. And other viral proteins listed here interfere with polyadenylation. They interfere with splicing. They interfere with RNA export. Many interfere with translation. We'll take a look at that in a moment. And many of them actually degrade cellular mRNAs. So if any of them make it out with all these other inhibitions, then they'll be degraded so the protein synthetic apparatus is available for the virus so it can use it all. So that many steps in cellular gene expression are are inhibited by virus infection. Here's an example of the inhibition of cellular pre-mRNA processing by viral proteins. This is a slide we've seen before, right? We have a pre-mRNA with an intron A variety of cell proteins are binding to it to facilitate splicing. These are part of the spliceosome. And remember the messages that are spliced then are marked by these proteins and that those are recognized by the nuclear export system to get them uh, exported out of the nucleus. Well, viral proteins can interfere with splicing and many of them interfere with export. These adenovirus proteins are binding components of the export machinery These these two red ones. All the red proteins are viral proteins. Uh, VSV is binding Nup ninety eight Nups or nuclear pore proteins. A whole bunch of nuclear pore proteins, Nups, and they're essential for export of cargo. So some viruses bind components of them. Influenza A virus NS one actually inhibits polyadenylation of cellular messages by binding proteins that are needed for that process, and of course the polyadenylation of the virus is done by a different mechanism. Uh, someone asks, is XRN a viral or host protein? It's a host protein. Uh, A protease of poliovirus, 2A pro, cleaves two NUPs, 153 and 62. Uh, And in some cases, the cleavage results in uh, unregulated export. In some cases, the export is inhibited. But in some cases, uh, many proteins come out of the nucleus because the, some of these viruses are cytosolic and they're required in the cytosol for virus reproduction. So poliovirus cleavage of these two NUPs uh, results in a lot of otherwise nuclear proteins going out into the cytoplasm. And they're actually, some of them are actually required for virus multiplication. So many, many points at which mRNA processing is, is inhibited. And then remember, I told you that uh, mRNA turnover is, can be regulated. So uh, messages have different half-lives. They don't all last forever. And um, that's controlled by sequences in the mRNA. And there are a series of cellular proteins. These are all cellular proteins here. The the ones that look like Pac-Man that are involved in degradation. So here here we have a cellular message and um, here here we have a protein, a cellular protein, CCR4 not pan, which is a chewing poly A tail off of that message. Uh, and then once the poly-A tail is gone, then this message is recognized by uh, an exosome, which degrades the message uh, and gets rid of it. Because if it's damaged by not having poly-A, got to get rid of it. So that's three to five prime decay. So it's carefully regulated in the cell. And here uh, we have five to three prime decay. The way this works is first the cap is removed. And once the cap is off, then this RNA is recognized as defective, in XRN1, that same exonuclease comes in and chews it up. So these are mechanisms that regulate cellular messages. And of course, they will destroy viral messages. So we have to get rid of them. And In fact, many of these proteins are either removed or relocalized in virus-infected cells. So the viral messages are not des- degraded. So for example, this PAN uh, protein here, which is up here, 3' taking off the tail, DCP, Uh, 1A over here, and XRN1. These are all degraded in poliovirus-infected cells. And again, you want to keep the viral mRNAs around. That's why uh, certain viruses are inhibiting these. Someone asked, uh, what is the benefit for the virus to inhibit poly-A binding protein to to, uh, block polyadenylation of cell messages? And then there's less competition for the translational apparatus, because those are not gonna be translated, those uh, messages without poly-A. Probably be degraded, because they don't have a poly-A by uh, the exosome. So here are some examples of how uh, viral proteins initiate mRNA degradation. And here we have, there, there are a couple here, including the SARS-CoV-1, the, the original one, encodes a protein here, called an SP1, which will chew the RNA basically removes the cap. Uh, human herpes virus eight, codes a SOX protein that also chews up the cap. H Herpes simplex virus will do the same thing. And vaccinia virus uh, proteins will also remove the cap as you can see here. And so once the cap is removed, that's a signal for XRN1 to come in and uh, degrade the message. So again, these are um, viral proteins now that are starting the degradation process And this is cellular messages that we're getting rid of. And once the cap in this case is removed, then XRN1, which is a cellular nuclease, comes in and degrades the message. So what's the benefit to get rid of the host mRNA? Again, to give the translational apparatus all to the viral mRNAs. There's no competition for the translational apparatus. You want to devote the entire translation machinery to the synthesis of viral proteins. That's how you can efficiently make many, many virus particles in in an infected cell. First question, which of the following is a consequence of viral proteins modifying signal transduction pathways to promote viral replication? A, poliovirus inhibition of transcription by RNA-Pol2, herpes simplex virus protein blocking pre-mRNA splicing, disruption of actin filaments to allow endocytosis, initiation of mRNA degradation by viral proteins. So remember, we want to know which ones are involved in signal transduction pathways. How did we do? Well, most of you got the right answer, See, disruption of actin filaments to allow endocytosis, right? So that's a signaling pathway. When the viruses bind, they initiate a signaling pathway that leads to disruption of filaments. The, uh, the others are not signal transduction pathways. I didn't tell you any signaling that's involved in any of these. There may be, but I I didn't tell you any. We don't know of any. They're just direct effects of viral proteins. We're going to talk a little bit about translation now. And to remind you what that is, we show you the Baltimore scheme again with mRNA at the middle. Remember all these seven classes of viral genome make mRNA that can be translated by the host cell. So what does the host cell do with that? And this is how some translation occurs in our cells at least this is how translation occurs of course messenger rnas have a a cap at the 5 prime end and the cap directs the ribosome to the mrna and it does so because the cap structure binds this protein called the if4e these are all viral uh, cellular proteins here this this mass of proteins all cellular and then you have a series of protein protein interactions that bring in the 40S subunit and the initiator tRNA, the methionine, right, which is going to put down the first AUG. And then the, the idea is that this complex starts to scan down from the 5'n, and when it reaches the AUG, which is shown here, the initiating AUG, then you have uh, energy hydrolysis, ATP hydrolysis, uh, the... Um, a large ribosomal subunit comes in. A lot of these proteins are released. These are all initiation proteins that are needed for this uh, initial process. And now we have the ribosome with the tRNA Met there, and it can start to read the codons and, and make a protein. And of course, every time there's a there's a codon here, tRNA goes in, the right tRNA goes in, and then you make a you you connect the uh, amino acid to the first one, and so on. Now viruses inhibit cell translation. We've we've talked about how they inhibit cellular mRNAs, cellular mRNA production in many ways, and they also inhibit translation. So just do everything to to get the whole apparatus, the translational apparatus of the cell devoted to the virus. So here's an experiment where uh, cells are infected with poliovirus, and then at different times post-infection, we're looking at the rate of protein synthesis. And you can see by Two hours, uh, the the protein synthesis has gone way down. And then it starts to go up again as viral protein synthesis replaces that of the cell. So we have initially an inhibition of cell translation and it's replaced by viral translation and eventually the cells die. So it's very quick, five hours. And uninfected cells continue to make protein as normal, of course. And on the right is a, a gel run by one of my students many years ago where the same experiment was done except at different times post-infection, S35-methionine was added to the medium. That's a radioactive methionine. Uh, And 15-minute, you add it, and then you scrape the cells off, extract them, and run them on a gel to separate the proteins. And you can see zero times is a big schmear, right? These are all cell proteins. But in one hour, three hours, you can see the schmear is going away. That's a technical term, by the way, schmear, Uh, and it's going away and eventually it's replaced by viral protein synthesis. So these other bands, which are labeled here, are viral proteins, replacing that of the host cell. And eventually the cells are dying here at seven hours, so there's not much of any kind of protein synthesis anymore. So that's a nice illustration of shutoff of host translation, replacement of schmier. I don't know the spelling. SH? Someone else must know. Yeah, you know, give me a bagel with a schmear, right? People say that all the time. And so many viruses do this. Why? Again, they free up the translation apparatus for the host cell. So how does this work? Let's take a look at an example. And these are uh, a variety of viruses here, how they specifically inhibit host cell translation. Remember, you can't inhibit viral translation. That would be counterproductive, right? Uh, And so here we have um, three viruses. Let's start at the top, sorry. This is the uh, cap binding protein, EIF4E, which will uh, bind to the crap. And then it's connected to these other proteins, which then recruit the ribosomal subunit, as shown down here. Okay. So the translation of host cell messages works that way. And some viruses, including poliovirus and foot and mouth disease virus, they have a protease that cleaves this red protein, 4G. You can see it's cleaved right there. And so that inhibits translation because now 4E will still bind the cap, but 4G, the rest of 4G is gone, and that's what you need to bring in the ribosome. So that inhibits cell translation, right? So that's uh, how poliovirus and and FMDV inhibit translation. But there are other mechanisms as well. Uh, In some cases, uh, the viral proteins dephosphorylate EIF-4E, so adenovirus and influenza virus-infected cells, uh, dephosphorylation dephosphorylation reduces the affinity of 4E for the 4G component, and it falls off, so that effectively inhibits translation. Uh, and finally, one more mechanism. There are a couple of um, proteins in the cell, 4 ebp one is one of them. These are 4E binding proteins, right? So they bind EIF4E and prevent it from associating with 4G, so that would inhibit translation. And so these are in the cell. These are cell proteins whose function is, to keep translation down until it's needed. You don't need to be translating at full blast all the time. So in some conditions in a cell, when you need to have cell growth, take away this phosphate, which allows 4E, take away the phosphate on 4EBP1. Sorry, I'm being distracted by the the shmear discussion. (laughs) I'm very bad with that. (laughs) Um, Dephosphorylation of uh, 4EBP1 allows it to bind 4E and, and inhibit translation. So normally the phosphate sits in there, and so 4E-BP1 can't bind 4E, and it doesn't inhibit translation. Now in the cell, there are certain conditions where this phosphate is removed to inhibit translation, but viruses can do it as well. They have uh, enzymes that remove the phosphate, and that causes an inhibition. So three mechanisms uh, by which a virus can inhibit translation, and many more, of course. But just to give you a sense is widespread among viruses it's very it's 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 needed to get efficient uh, reproduction but viruses also do other things with respect to translation actually quite extensive we used to have a whole lecture on translation uh, but i had to remove it because i wanted to put some other lectures in the cellular messenger rnas are translated by this five prime N dependent mechanism which we've discussed the cap protein CAP binding protein, 4E binds the CAP and then recruits in all these other proteins and eventually the 4DS subunit. And this requires all these, these are eukaryotic initiation factors. These are proteins like 4A and EIF3 and 4G that are needed for translation. And there are many more. There is a process on viral RNAs called internal initiation where some of these viral RNAs are actually not capped. The Poliovirus genome is not capped. The coronaviruses in general do not have caps and other viruses lack caps as well. So how do you get the 40S subunit to the mRNA if you don't have a cap? Well, it turns out there is a sequence at the five prime end of these viral RNAs called an iris internal ribosome entry site. And that sequence, which is shown as the folding of this RNA here will bind 4G directly and that will bring in the 4DS subunit. So you don't need a cap binding protein there. And this poliovirus and related viruses have this iris. And so they don't care if, I shouldn't say care, but it doesn't matter if uh, 4G is cleaved to inhibit host cell translation because that's what happens in these virus infected cells because the rest of 4G will still work because it can bind the iris uh, and, and get the 40s ds subunited. And then we have hepatitis C virus. What does iris stand for? Internal ribosome entry site. The real question is, what color is an iris? Is this a joke. They come in many colors, right? <clears throat> hepatitis C virus is an interesting virus with an iris where the, the iris actually can bind, it doesn't need EIF4G, you can bind EIF3, and then the 40S subunit comes along and binds. This could be an ancient RNA, you know, something just after the RNA world went to uh, to proteins. So this is what an iris looks like um, in, in poliovirus. Here's the poliovirus genome, 4,440 bases plus one or 200 RNAs, a polyase tail. And you may ask, how do you know that? because in the 1980s, I did the sequence of this viral gene. It was one of the first uh, animal viral genomes, RNA virus genomes sequenced. And I probably told you already that it took me a year to do that. (laughs) And 7,440 bases. And um, today would take a half hour. Anyway, at the five prime end of the genome, there's this long untranslated region. There's the initiating methionine. And then you make a long polyprotein that gets cleaved by proteases. In this sequence is the internal ribosome entry site. It actually folds. There's a lot of secondary structure there in the RNA, stem loops and so forth. And that constitutes an an internal ribosome entry site. And the EIF4G can bind directly to it. In the case for Procornus and, of course, in the case for Hep C, the the EIF3 and the 4DS can bind directly to the iris without 4G. So that's how they work. So these viruses can shut off host translation Uh, by interfering with the cap step. And and they're not capped. They don't depend on a cap-dependent mechanism. These are uh, what the folding of irises look like. There are a variety of different ones. They're called type 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. You know, scientists like to categorize things, right? So we have many different types based more or less on their structures. The type 1 is the poliovirus or enterovirus iris. And you see highly structured, and then there's an AUG where the initiation starts. And so the idea is the rib- the 4- EIF-4G binds this structured RNA. In fact, on the type 2 iris, the footprint of EIF-4G has been identified. A footprint means where the protein is sitting on the RNA. You can add the protein and then digest the RNA with ribonucleases. And what's left is called the footprint. And it's right there. So the 4G binds there and brings in the 4DS subunit, which can then start translating at this AUG. And there are, there, these are some other kinds of iris as well, different structures. There's actually no sequence in common among these irises. You can't identify an iris by looking at sequence. You have to do an assay. You have to show that it leads to internal initiation, which is typically by putting uh, an iris in between two open reading frames and showing that the second one can be translated, which would normally not happen if, if there weren't an internal initiation there. Uh, There are other ways that translation is uh, regulated. The initiation step is a big uh, step of regulation of uh, protein synthesis. Protein synthesis, you have initiation, elongation, and termination, right? Most of the regulation is at the initiation step, which we've described briefly. There's also some at uh, elongation. But I want to focus on this mechanism because it turns out to uh, be important when we talk about interferon. So here we have... um, The uh, an mRNA with a cap, and the the uh, 40s subunit has been brought to the AUG. Now we have the met tRNA there. Everything is ready to go. This uh, met tRNA is brought in as what's called the ternary complex. All that means is there are three components: the tRNA, eIF2, and GTP. When initiation begins, there's this GTP is hydrolyzed to release energy. Right now, you have GDP bound to eIF2, and it is released. And then this uh, this 40S, the, the big subunit will join and it will start translating. But this GDB has to re- be recycled. Uh, it's in limiting amounts in the cell. So you have to replace the GDP with GTP so it can go through another cycle of initiation. And that's done by EIF2B, which is basically a guanine exchange protein. What does that mean? It exchanges GTP GDP for GTP. So uh, GDP-EIF2 binds EIF2B, and then GTP substitutes for GDP, and now you have released GTP-EIF2, which can bind a, a tRNA mat, make a new ternary complex, and you can do more translation. This step is highly regulated by a number of protein kinases. These are enzymes that put phosphates on other proteins, and there are three of them here. They're called PERC. GCN2, and double-stranded RNA. And these are activated in cells. These are cellular protein kinases. They're actually called EIF2-alpha kinases because they're going to phosphorylate the alpha subunit of this protein EIF2. They're activated by stress, basically. So ER stress. What is ER stress? Well, when you make a lot of viral glycoproteins in the ER, the, the cell gets stressed. It doesn't like that. And it responds by activating PERC, which will shut down translation. And then there's another uh, EIF2 alpha kinase called PKR that stands for protein kinase RNA activated. It's activated by double-stranded RNA, which is made in virus infected cells. Typically cells do not have double-stranded RNA in them, only when they get infected. So that's kind of a a sensing for virus infection. So PKR is, is activated. So what happens when these kinases are activated? Well, they phosphorylate EIF2 here. You can see the GDP with EIF2 is being phosphorylated now. It will still bind EIF2B, but it doesn't leave. This thing is locked in there because of the phosphate, and you can't recycle it. And so basically, you inhibit translation. You actually bind up all the EIF2B, so there's none left to be recycling any GDP EIF2 that's around. So basically phosphorylation of EIF2 inhibits initiation and it's activated by this protein, all three of these kinases, but uh, ER stress and double-stranded RNA are what happens in virus-infected cells. So the the cell is basically trying to shut down protein synthesis because a virus is there. It has sensed that a virus is there and um, it's going to shut down translation. Now that may kill that cell, but it may protect the organism. That's the way we look at it, but that's a human-centric view. I'm not sure that's correct, but it can stop virus infection. How does this activation by double stranded RNA work? So here is PKR. It has a catalytic domain and two double stranded RNA binding domains. And here's double stranded RNA. And the idea is, right, so these PKR molecules bind double stranded RNA via this double stranded RNA binding motif. It makes sense, right? And we believe that when you have two PKR molecules bound to the RNA, they phosphorylate each other. And that makes them active. It's now active PKR. And then it can go on to phosphorylate EIF2 alpha. So that's how double-stranded RNA activates PKR. Because normally you don't want to have active PKR in the cell. It would shut down translation and cells need to translate, right? It actually, PKR is actually regulated in uninfected cells. Here is a protein called PACT, which is a cell protein that can activate PKR in the absence of double stranded RNA. So this is a protein that has important functions in the host cell, PKR, but it is a part of the viral defense. And as you'll see in a moment, PKR is induced by interferon. So it's part of the early innate defense against virus infection. And so here's a summary of that. PKR is induced and activated by virus infection. What does that mean? So it's induced, the the protein is actually made, the transcription of the protein is turned on by virus infection. And then it's activated by double-stranded RNA. And you may be saying, what is this double-stranded RNA coming from? Not all viruses are RNA viruses, right? Right. But double-stranded DNA viruses can transcribe both the top and the the bottom strands, and that will make a double-stranded RNA. And that's what we think happens for many DNA viruses. And of course, many RNA viruses have double-stranded RNA as part of their replication intermediates. All right, so the PKR is induced and activated by virus infected, activated by double-stranded RNA. It will phosphorylate EIF2-alpha. You get inhibition of host translation. It's also, phosphorylated EIF2-alpha is actually also an inducer of apoptosis, programmed cell death. So the cell will die from a combination of apoptosis and inhibition of translation. A good way to stop an infection. And this is so powerful that every virus has some way to inactivate the PKR pathway. Every viral genome that we've looked at has at least one protein to antagonize this. Otherwise, this, this is so powerful there wouldn't be any viruses around. So the bottom line here is viruses can get around anything. So let me give you an example of an antagonist, a viral antagonist. This is an RNA made by adenovirus called VARNA1. It's a short RNA and its structure is shown here, VARNA1. And what it does is to bind PKR, but only one molecule of PKR is bound. So PKR cannot be activated because in order to get activation of PKR, two molecules need to bind to a double-stranded RNA. How brilliant is that, right? It's just amazing. So VARNA is made abundantly in adenovirus-infected cells and that prevents phosphorylation of EIF2-alpha so no phosphorylation, and you get active protein synthesis. Whereas in the absence of v a r n a, if the adenovirus infected cell is making double stranded rna, if you didn't have v a r n a, you would get inhibition of protein synthesis. You could do this experiment. You can delete the v a r n a one gene from the genome. You can make a virus, and that virus uh, it doesn't do very well because it can't inhibit cellular protein synthesis. So again, this. PKR is induced by infection. It's turned on when the interferon system senses virus infection. It turns on, the protein is made, and then it's activated by double-stranded RNA. Here's here's a sampling, a smorgasbord, another schmore word, (laughs) a smorgasbord of viral proteins that antagonize this process. And they antagonize at various steps. I'm going to counter inactivation of EIF2. Um, remember EIF2 is inactivated by phosphorylation and viruses need to have it active so that they can get translated. So someone asked, the PKI can still bind double-stranded RNA. It's just that VA RNA-1 binding. One of them inhibits mutual phosphorylation. Exactly. It inhibits mutual (laughs) phosphorylation, right? Exactly. And so here are some viruses and proteins that uh, inhibit this pathway. So EIF2 is the target, of course, of, PKR phosphorylation. Xenia virus encodes a protein called K3L, which looks very much like EIF2-alpha. It basically distracts all of the PKR to phosphorylating it, and it ignores, it ignores EIF2 and it gets around it. B-simplex virus encodes a phosphatase that takes the phosphates off as soon as they're put on. Now, here's PERK. We've talked about PKR down here, right? The other kinase is PERC. And PERK is in the ER membrane. And normally it's not a dimer, it's a monomer. But when there's ER stress, right? And that's when you're making a lot of viral spike glycoproteins, for example. The cell does not like that. These This protein senses that and it dimerizes. Here's the luminal part of the ER on top here. This will sense the viral proteins and it will dimerize. And then this part of the protein phosphorylates itself, becomes active, and now it can Phosphorylate EIF2, just like PKR does. Anyway, there are viral inhibitors of PERC. And then there are a whole bunch of viral inhibitors of PKR. There are double-stranded RNA binding proteins that sop up double-stranded RNA, so it won't activate PKR. There are the antagonists of RNA that we talked about, like the VA RNA that will only bind one PKR. And then there are antagonists of the protein. So you see very different viruses here are encoding counters of this system because it's so powerful. It would just, viruses would not get anywhere uh, if they couldn't counter this. So, this is how this has evolved. Next question PKR is an interferon induced enzyme that is inactivated by what, leading to phosphorylation of what and inhibition of translation. And the choices are GDP EIF2 alpha, double stranded RNA EIF2 alpha, double stranded RNA EIF2B, single stranded RNA EIF2 alpha, or none of the above. Most of you got double-stranded RNA EIF2-alpha. That's right. PKR is an interferon-induced enzyme that is activated by double-stranded RNA and leads to phosphorylation of EIF2-alpha. So it's not activated by GDP. It is activated by double-stranded RNA, but it doesn't phosphorylate EIF2b. It's not activated by single-stranded RNA. Double-stranded RNA EIF2-alpha. All right, our last uh, foray into translation is about stress granules. You know, we, we all get stressed for various reasons, but cells get stressed. The ER gets stressed. If there's a virus reproducing, the cells get stressed and they can sense it in a variety of ways. And one of the things they do is to build these things called stress granules. <laughs> and you can see them in the cytoplasm of infected cells. They're very specific circular structures made up of a variety of proteins, cell proteins, including RAP55, G3BP, TIA1, TIAR. You would never need to know any of these, but you just need to know there are cell proteins that go to building a stress granule. And then the cell puts all the RNAs into these and that shuts off translation. So here's some actively translating RNAs. And when the cell senses stress from a virus infection, builds stress granules and puts the RNAs in them. And there, they're, they're quiescent. They're not translated. And it's not good for the virus, right? You have to get your, your mRNAs translated. So viruses encode antagonists of stress granules. So you can see these form early in virus-infected cells, and then they go away as viral proteins are made that antagonize them. And these are all the viruses here that encode antagonists. You know, we got influenza, flavy poliovirus, uh, um, arena viruses, alpha viruses, morpholaviviruses. They're doing all sorts of different things, like the NS1 protein of influenza virus binds RAP55, which is needed to make a stress granule, so it blocks them from forming. Hepatitis C virus, as you'll see in a moment, it reproduces its RNAs on lipid droplets. And one of the components of this complex is G3BP. It needs it to make the reproduction site. So G3BP is essential for stress granule formation. So hep C steals that away by viral proteins in red binding G3BP. Poliovirus actually cleaves G3BP. Cleaving means a protease cutting it, right? So now G3BP will not contribute to the formation. Let's see what else we have here. Here we have a variety of viruses. All these viruses here, they're replication complexes require components of the stress granule. Here, G3BP, G3BP. So alpha viruses and arena viruses and flaviviruses, it, they bind up these components in different ways because they need them for their RNA synthesis. And at the same time, it pulls out the components so that you can reverse stress granule formation. So this is important because otherwise the the cell mRNAs wouldn't be translated. And many viral genomes encode antagonists of stress granules. All right, enough translation. Let's do some metabolism. Let's do things that you thought you would never see again, <laughs> like the Krebs cycle. I have to say that I, you know, about 10 years ago, this appeared in virology, and I thought I would never see it again after college. But it's actually quite relevant because to make a lot of virus particles, you need energy and you need stuff. What kind of stuff? Nucleotides, amino acids, fatty acids to build new virus particles, right? The cell has to keep making those and you need energy. Single peptide bonds requires four ATP molecules. It's a lot of ATP. And some people say, ah, there's plenty of ATP around. Well, there's some days I feel I have no ATP, so it's obviously regulated. And so what virus infection does is to impact metabolism to ensure that all of this stuff can be made Let me just answer a question here. Someone said, do the viral mRNAs also get taken up into the stress granules? Yeah, that's the point. These are viral mRNAs in cell too. It doesn't distinguish to stop viral translation. Okay, here's the Krebs cycle. And remember, pyruvate comes in. Pyruvate is a product of glucose metabolism. We'll we'll see that in a moment. You make acetyl-CoA, right? And that starts the cycle. You make all these intermediates. And along the way, you can make energy and you can make intermediates for other things, like citrate goes off to make fatty acids. In fact, human cytomegalovirus infection pulls off, pulls off the fatty acids from citrate because it needs it for its membrane. And that would kind of make the thing halt here if it didn't replenish it. So in human cytomegalovirus-infected cells and also Vaccinia virus-infected cells and herpes simplex virus-infected cells, they, they pull in glutamine, which they can convert to alpha-ketoglutarate and keep the cycle going. Because herpes simplex also pulls off from the oxaloacetate step, uh, aspartate, which will eventually go to making pyrimidines and purines, right? Nucleic acid, uh, nucleic acid building blocks. So a number of viruses pull intermediates off, but they make sure they replenish them. In many cases, it's via glutamine here going in at that step. Otherwise this cycle would halt, right? You pull out all the citrate, you're not going to go downstream. And so that's those are some of the impacts that virus infections have on metabolism. They need specific building blocks and we'll look at some more of these in a moment. And they have to modulate uh, these cycles, these biochemical cycles to do that. Many virus-infected cells show increased glycolysis, right? The breakdown of glucose. And that is shown in this experiment where we have plates of cells and you know, cell medium has a pH indicator in it. So, you know, when it's the right pH, it's, a, it's this nice uh, red or orange color. And then as the pH drops, it turns orange and then eventually yellow. And if, you know, your cells are turning yellow and they shouldn't be, that's a problem. You can see it visually very easily. So here is a plate of cells and uh, they're infected with adenovirus in the middle. And we're looking at different times after infection and you see this is this virus is slow. It takes a long time to get going. But starting at about 48 hours, you see the medium is turning yellow. And that's because the low pH is a consequence of the production of lactic acid, which is a product of glycolysis. We'll see that in a moment. The mock-infected cells. What is a mock-infected cell? You just, instead of adding virus, you add PBS, buffer, and you go through the whole the whole procedure and you put medium on and they're fine. And here is the cells are infected with an adenovirus mutant that cannot reproduce the deletion in the E4 gene. And you can see it doesn't acidify the medium. And this is a this is a, a different way of looking at it. This is actually glucose consumption. You can measure glucose consumption in animals per million cells per hour. And you can see it goes up in adeno wild type infected cells. So the cells are consuming glucose. We sort of had evidence for that here in the low pH, but here you can see it quantified. And the E4 deletion mutant is not, is not um, consuming any glucose. Yeah, it's like a negative control to make sure you didn't do anything that would make the cells turn yellow. Who knows? You know, you could have dropped something in the cells or whatever. You always have to have this negative control. And sometimes you'd like a positive control, but we don't, in this case, we're we're looking at what the virus is doing. So many other viruses are increasing, glycolysis, rhinoviruses, I wrote an article once called, rhinoviruses have a sweet tooth, they like glucose. If you take it away, it inhibits reproduction. So here is glucose metabolism. Uh, Glucose, of course, is the major breakdown product of what you eat, the carbohydrate in your food and it's imported into cells so here's glucose at the top this is the plasma membrane of a cell and there's a transporter called GLUT34 that pumps the glucose into the cell uh, and then it goes through uh, this metabolic pathway and uh, you know at different points you make energy it's eventually converted to pyruvate and gives you two ATP molecules and two NADH. And some of these intermediates that peel off, you can get more ATP made as well. And virus infections certainly perturb this, right? Some of them increase it. Some of them uh, don't do anything to it. But I just want to point out that, you know, as you go through these intermediates, you can pull off here at, at the glucose 6-phosphate point, you can pull this off into what we call the pentose phosphate pathway. And, Ribose 5-phosphate is a precursor for nucleotides, so this can give rise to nucleotides. Uh, and then down here, acetyl-CoA, which can be made from pyruvate, is um, a precursor for fatty acid synthesis, which, of course, you need to make membranes, and many envelope viruses need that. In fact, many non-envelope viruses need membranes. They, they need the membranes to reproduce their RNAs on and finally the last step gives you uh, lactic acid and that reduces the pH of the medium so the adenovirus is somehow pushing glucose through this shunt at a higher rate than uninfected cells because the uninfected cells are just the medium is still yellow is still red so let's take a look at, at one example of perturbation here are two herpes viruses herpes simplex 1 and human cytomegalovirus and they have different effects on glycolysis herpes uh, simplex virus doesn't really in- increase the uptake of glucose. So this, r- this green arrow here means human cytomegalovirus is increasing the uptake of glucose and it pushes it all the way to acetyl-CoA, which it needs for membranes. So this the idea is that HCMV is kind of a slow replicating virus. It's pushing all of the glucose to precursors of fatty acids, whereas in herpes simplex-infected cells, the virus doesn't increase glucose uptake, but rather takes everything that normally would come into the cell and shunts it off to the ribose-5-phosphate pathway. It doesn't doesn't go on to pyruvate, but it wants to make a lot of nucleotides. And and the idea here is that herpes has a shorter reproduction cycle. It needs more nucleotide precursors to make a lot of DNA, and it can get along with the the pools of lipids that are present uh, in the cell. If the viruses pull out the products of the Krebs cycle, how come lactate is elevated Well, lactate is elevated because they're pushing them through here. And then uh, the the pyruvate has to go into the um, Krebs cycle in order to make more energy and so forth. But if you go to lactate, you will acidify the pH. Now, let's take a look at fatty acid synthesis. The problem here is that um, acetyl-CoA, which is made in the mitochondrion here, right? There's your mitochondrial membrane. So the glucose goes to pyruvate, which is imported into the mitochondrion, is converted to acetyl-CoA. It can't get back out because in the cytosol is where fatty acids are synthesized. So how does it get out? Well, you do a little trickery here. You you convert it to citrate, which can then get transported out of the mitochondrion. And then in the cytosol, you convert it back to acetyl-CoA, which is costs, you know, it costs energy, but that's what you have to do. Uh, and then it can get, you know, it can get converted back to pyruvate and go back in if it need be, or it can go off to this pathway, uh, malonyl-CoA, and then fatty acid synthase will make fatty acids from this. Okay, so there are a number of enzymes here. Uh, and in fact, uh, in human cytomegalovirus-infected cells, uh, most of the citrate leaves the mitochondria for fatty acid synthesis because as we saw in the previous slide, this uh, virus requires a lot of membranes. So it pulls out the citrate and makes fatty acids with it. And if you inhibit... Uh, malonyl-CoA synthase or um, fatty acid synthase and then you infect cells with cytomegalovirus you inhibit virus yields so that provides direct support that these uh, fatty acids are required for production of virus and for another virus vesicular stomatitis virus another member of this shuttle is uh, increased in cells infected with that again because this virus requires fatty acids uh, a little more on on um, alterations here. How about viruses that infect the liver? Could they change glucose metabolism and cause disease? So here, uh, of course, the liver is where you, you make uh, glycogen and where you make glucose. Gluconeogenesis happens in the liver, right? Now, hepatitis B virus is a liver-specific virus. Uh, and infection with that virus is associated with development of Type 2 diabetes, which, you know, insulin deficiency resistance type diabetes. And that is in part because infection stimulates levels of enzymes involved in glucose synthesis. It requires glucose for, you know, presumably energy and also fatty acid precursors. So, increases the production of glucose and that leads to diabetes. Hepatitis C virus does a similar thing. Now, hep C reduces uptake of glucose. So, to make up, it increases gluconeogenesis in the liver So you get high levels of glucose and that leads to diabetes. So these changes induced by virus infection have consequences for pathogenesis of of human diseases. Back to our um, citric acid cycle, which of course is is the hub of carbon metabolism. And as I already mentioned, it makes precursors for many things like fatty acids, um, precursors to nucleotides and so forth and energy, of course. And and virus infections impact this. One example is lipid metabolism. Now, here's a a lipid, a a triacylglycerol. These are the primary energy source uh, in cells. Um, They can be oxidized to give rise to energy. And it's how we store energy in these triacylglycerols. And, of course, viruses require them for membrane synthesis. And so lipid metabolism is modulated in virus-infected cells. You have to have a balance between oxidation and synthesis, whether you need the energy, which would be provided by oxidation of lipids or if you need them synthesized for membranes. So you have to have a balance. And and just to show you what happens here, these uh, triacylglycerols, they're in your bloodstream. Uh, They bind lipoproteins, uh, which in turn uh, bind receptors on cell surface, low-density lipoprotein receptor, lipoprotein lyase, excuse me, it's the wrong name, lipoprotein lyase, which breaks up lipoproteins into free fatty acids, and they get imported into the cell, uh, and then uh, from them are made acetyl-CoA, acetyl-CoA synthase makes acetyl-CoA, which can then be uh, imported into storage areas, including these so-called lipid droplets. These are collections of acetyl-CoA, and um, they're coated with a protein. So these are called mature lipid droplets. And it's a way to store uh, fatty acids in the cell. Human cytomegalovirus infection induces the synthesis of very long-chain fatty acids for assembly. The fatty acids come in different lengths according to the chain, short, medium, and long. So this virus likes long-chain. And what it does is increases carbon flux from glucose to acetyl-CoA, which we kind of mentioned already before. So you get increased fatty acid production, but also the long-chain fatty acids that we find in viral membranes. And the mechanism involves increased... Activators for transcription of genes that are needed for lipid synthesis. And that's shown on this slide here. Let me, let me go through this with you. So the genes for fatty acid and sterile synthesis, of course, they're in the nucleus. Their transcription is regulated uh, by this protein, SREBP1-M. So this is a transcriptional activator that'll turn on the synthesis of these genes, and then you can make fatty acids. Now, Normally, this SREBP1-M is stuck in the ER here, there it is, right there, and it is—it's—it's it's attached to this uh, double membrane transmembrane protein here, and then in, in turn it's bound to a protein called SCAP, and it stays there; it doesn't move, so it can't get in the nucleus. Now, in, in human cytomegalovirus-infected cells, uh, that virus, of course, makes glycoproteins in the ER. It causes ER stress, which causes the PERK to dimerize. That's the ER kinase, and when uh, PERK dimerizes, it pulls. Uh, this protein off of SCAP SREBP1, and that allows it to then move through the Golgi. And finally, at the last part of the Golgi here, uh, this protein is cleaved off and you have SREBP1M going into the nucleus and turning on genes for fatty acid synthesis. So uh, this is turned on. Normally, this would be regulated by cholesterol or fatty acid levels, you know, if you have plenty of fatty acids around, this protein would would remain in the uh, ER. But virus infection causes it to come out and go in the nucleus, turn on genes for fatty acid and sterile synthesis because the virus requires those, of course, for reproduction. Now, hepatitis C does a similar thing. And what it does is to balance oxidation versus lipogenesis, right? So lipids can be made or they can be degraded to make energy and two different transcription factors control the genes for synthesis or oxidation. So hep C decreases the amount of transcription factor FOXA2 that's needed for the genes that uh, cause oxidation. It reduces oxidation and it turns up FOXO1, which is needed for transcription of genes that increase lipogenesis. So the virus does this. And the consequence is that in virus-infected cells, you see more fatty acids. So here are hepatocytes. On the left, mock-infected hepatocytes. They're stained with uh, DAPI for the nucleus, and then there's a stain for a a fatty acid, which shows up green. So you can see there's a little bit of fatty acids in these cells. And then if you infect them with hepatitis C virus, the amount of fatty acids goes up. And again, that's because the virus is controlling these transcription factors to favor lipogenesis and inhibit fatty acid oxidation. Our last question for today is, how might virus infection lead to increased levels of ATP? Stimulation of glucose uptake, increased glycolysis, increased oxidation of fatty acids, increased utilization of glutamine, or all of the above. All right, we're stuck. So let's see what we did. 38. And most of you got all of the above. That's correct. They're all right. You can get increased levels of ATP by stimulating glucose uptake. We saw an example of that, increased glycolysis increased oxidation, increased utilization of glutamine, which goes into the TCA and the Krebs cycle and replaces if you take out citrate. Now, when when many viruses infect cells, especially RNA viruses, they remodel the cellular organelles. And here's an example in poliovirus. And all these viruses make some kind of membranous structure on which to reproduce their RNA genomes. And here is, again, that stain for fatty acids in mock and poliovirus-infected cells. And you can see Uh, increased import of fatty acids into polio-infected cells, increased synthesis. And what happens is you get the formation of these double membrane structures and on the surface uh, and inside of those, the viral RNA is reproduced. And this is done by a few viral proteins that grab lipid droplets and shunt the triglycerides into these, these membrane components. So it's an active process by a couple of viral proteins. So again, on the surface of these vesicles, the viral RNA synthesis occurs on the surface and inside. And late in infection, these can trap virus particles and, and they can get released by non-lytic mechanisms as we discussed. A couple more examples of this because different families of viruses do this differently. Here's hepatitis C virus. They're really interesting because these assemble on lipid droplets, those storage areas for lipids. And early on in in Evaginations of the ER. The viral genome is reproduced. Here's some viral RNAs. Double-stranded RNAs being made, and then later in infection, uh, a lipid droplet comes in here. It's coated with viral proteins, and you can see a viral protein, a virus capsid being made by uh, budding into this lumen up here, and it's it's grabbing a viral RNA. And you can see these very clearly in in, uh, infected cells. Here's a. Reconstruction of an electron micrograph in different colors. And you can see these extensive vesicles linked uh, to the endoplasmic reticulum. And again, these kinds of structures are induced by viral proteins as sites of viral replication and eventually assembly of particles. Uh, the last one I want to tell you about is so cool. It's a plant virus, uh, which is an RNA virus. It induces these vesicle evaginations from the ER. And viral RNA synthesis occurs in these vesicles. You can see it happening right here. The viral polymerase is in there. Uh, But these these, uh, vesicles are coated with a viral protein, P33, which grabs pyruvate kinase and pulls it into these vesicles and uses it to make ATP. So pyruvate kinase takes pyruvate, makes pyruvate from it. You get a, a molecule of ATP from that. And of course, the polymerase needs energy to make RNA. And that's where the energy is coming from. The virus pulls this enzyme into these vesicles by virtue of this viral protein, P33. And you can see that in this fluorescence uh, micrograph series here, this is uh, an antibody against, these are infected plant cells. The virus is tomato bushy stunt virus. And here we're staining with antibodies to this P33 protein. And here is uh, pyruvate kinase tagged with green fluorescent protein and the merge shows you and there's the blow up one of these vesicles where you've got p33 in there along with uh, pyruvate kinase and so again the viral RNA synthesis happens and it needs energy and the pyruvate kinase provides that amazing things happen in virus infected cells and of course we can't uh, end this without referring to, to coronaviruses which also reproduce their genomes on double membrane vesicles that are induced in infected cells by viral proteins. Here's a electron micrograph reconstruction of them. You can see many of them uh, made here, again, made in infected cells and on these are made viral mRNAs uh, and the genomes are replicated. So in cells infected with most RNA viruses, you see these alterations, the example, the, um, exception would be, of course, viruses where the RNA synthesis occurs in the particle, so they don't make these double strand, uh, double membrane vesicles. So we have actually finished the reproduction cycle of viruses. That's the first half of this course. And the rest, we're going to talk about diseases and how to prevent them. So first, we will go through some infection basics. Don't miss it. You want to learn all about transmission and shedding and so forth. Come back for that one.